Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are continuing in our walk through this uh, wonderful epistle, and we are in chapter 1, and I will be reading beginning in verse 16, uh, 16 and 17, which we looked at last week. Uh, We will be rereading these and go to the end of the chapter. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to turn there and follow along as I read. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Moreover, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us 
this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. Last week we spent a good amount of time on verses 16 and 17 because, as we said, this is the summation of the entire letter to the Romans. Paul indicates that the key to understanding the whole Christian message is to grasp the truth contained in these two verses, which is that it is by means of the gospel that God's salvation powerfully comes to all those who believe, and that it is in the gospel that we discover a righteousness that God imputes to the believer or credits to the believer's account, a righteousness that is of God, which is fully acceptable to him and satisfies his righteous indignation because of our sin. This righteousness is the righteousness of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and it is by faith that his righteousness is credited to us. Now, it was this reclaimed understanding of the gospel that served as the impetus for the Protestant Reformation that resulted in the affirmation that you hear frequently from this pulpit and in this church that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is, there is nothing within within any person that causes God to show them favor, but it is by God's grace alone that the Spirit of God regenerates someone to salvation. And it is not through our works, but through faith alone, that we come to experience the grace of God's salvation. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ alone, whose perfect life qualified Him to be our substitute. When we trust in His works alone and nothing of our own, then it is His righteousness that is imputed, credited to us. Now this salvation makes absolutely no sense if humanity has no concept of what they are being saved from, which is what the Apostle begins to explain in the text that is before us today. But it is worth noting that the good news of the righteousness of God is set forth before the wrath of God is explained. It is as though Paul is saying, listen, I have good news and I have bad news. Let me tell you the good news first. God saves everyone who puts their trust in His Son by giving them the righteousness of His Son. Now let me tell you the bad news. Those who do not avail themselves of God's plan for salvation will suffer God's wrath, for everyone stands condemned until they trust in Christ Jesus. And with that, Paul proceeds to explain why God has a plan for our salvation that does not rely upon us at all, and why it is that such a plan is absolutely necessary. Beginning with verse 18, 
we have another summation, a summation of human history from the fall of Adam until this very day. From the root of Adam's rebellion against the sovereignty of God has grown an ancestral tree where every single leaf, on every single twig, on every single branch, on every single limb has been infected with that same rebellious spirit. Even though God has sufficiently revealed aspects of His eternal power and divine nature through the creation of the world, humanity has failed to appropriately acknowledge God. We have not properly honored God through our worship. We have not bowed in grateful submission to Him. We have not recognized that to Him alone we owe our very existence. Now these are all sins of omission, things that we have failed to do, things that we ought to have done but did not. But these sins of omission have led to sins of commission. That is, our failure to honor God with our worship has turned into a worship of anything and everything that is creaturely. Our failure to bow the knee in gratitude has resulted in a delusional pride that says that all that we have and all that we are is the product of our own ingenuity and industry. Our failure to recognize God as our Creator has led to a pervasive lie that argues that God does not exist and we have intentionally replaced God with something that we call fate or chance or luck. Paul indicates that just as the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith, so also has the wrath of God been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now we could spend a lot of time exploring the many and varied ways in which God's wrath has been revealed, but there is perhaps no greater revelation than the simple fact that all men die. Nowhere in the world will you find a line of descendants of Adam that do not die. Now, why is that? Because God said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall die. And this is the spiritual truth that materializes to one degree or another with every sinful Act. It isn't simply that there is a day of judgment coming, but rather it is unfolding even now, giving the world fair warning of an even greater wrath that is to come. Now, what does Paul mean by the wrath of God? Well, we make a horrible mistake when we equate the wrath of God with the wrath of of man, For the wrath of man is typically understood to be an irrational, emotional outburst of uncontrollable anger and rage. But the wrath of God is not a divine hissy fit. There is nothing about the wrath of God that is irrational or emotional or uncontrolled. Quite to the contrary, God's judgments are entirely rational. They are dispassionate. They are perfectly measured. They are wholly righteous. One commentator has defined God's wrath as his settled indignation. In other words, in the face of humanity's 
rebellious behavior, God has patiently endured our sin, delaying the full day of wrath or the day of judgment, being exceedingly gracious towards us, but by providing us with every opportunity to come to faith in Christ and thus escape God's eternal righteous judgment. And you see, this is what we are being saved from. God. God's righteous judgment. God is seeking to save us from Himself, from His wrath. God is offering a salvation that in the end prevents us from being subjected to that eternal punishment. Now notice what Paul says here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because we make another horrible mistake when we fail to understand that little word, all. Because this verse should dispel any thought that there is such a thing as a little white lie, as though there is some level of sin that is acceptable in the sight of God and will escape His righteous judgment. God's holiness hates sin. Every sinful word, every sinful deed, every sinful thought provides evidence that we possess a radically sinful nature that justly deserves the wrath and the judgment of God. As the psalmist declares, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And then he goes on to say, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And after his survey, he concludes, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And the wisest man Known to us, Solomon says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, God's holiness prevents him from being passive in the face of our sin. Any person who is counting on God to grade humanity on the curve is going to be horribly surprised on the day of judgment, when sins they have long forgotten about are brought to their memory. And they are enabled to understand the magnitude of their offense against the holiness of God. And then their sins are presented as a charge against them. And the Scriptures tell us that in that moment their mouths will be shut. For the evidence against them will be so overwhelming that even they will agree with the verdict that God will render. Now all of this ungodliness and unrighteousness is a vain attempt on the part of sinful humanity to suppress the truth about God, Paul says. It's designed to suppress the truth of God's existence. It is designed to suppress the truth about God's attributes. It is designed to suppress the truth about God's judgment. 
And one has only to read the daily headlines to know that the truth of God has been enormously suppressed. For how different it would be if people's minds and foolish hearts had not been darkened by sin and they understood the truth about God. If the truth that every single person was made by God and stamped with His image was a truth that every person was deeply aware of, how much racial prejudice do you believe would exist in this world? How many people would be murdered every year if perpetrators realized that they were killing an image bearer of Almighty God? How many wars would ever be started or war crimes be committed? Would Roe v. Wade have even been a thing if every person understood the truth that God was at work knitting each person together in their mother's womb? Would young people be so deeply confused and conflicted over gender identity issues if they understood that God had made them and they could sing with the psalmist, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Or if the truth that God providentially provides for all of His creatures, that His rain falls upon the just and the unjust, that even the birds of the air are supplied with all that they need, and that we are more valuable to God than the birds. If the truth of God's providential care of His creation was not suppressed by our ungodliness and unrighteousness, but was generally known, what impact do you think that might have upon crimes of greed in this world? Would anyone be talking about climate change being an existential threat to the world if they knew that God had his finger on the earth's thermostat? Would there be panic over stormy skies or times of drought if people trusted in the God of the Bible? Would we take refuge in his promise, fear not, for I have redeemed you? I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. If people knew that and believed that, do you suppose supply chain issues would even be on our radar? Or if people knew the truth about God's righteousness, that a day of wrath was coming, that a day of judgment was on the way, what impact do you think that would have upon our world? You see, since the beginning of our existence, there has been an assault on the truth about God. Even though the episodes of God's judgment falling upon nations may have given people pause. It has not been long before those moments were shrugged off and people returned to their unrighteousness and ungodliness. 
So even when God has graciously provided glimpses into his divine attitude towards men's sins, the hardness of our hearts has caused us to either ignore the warning or to erroneously conclude that God will not render a final judgment. In the Apostle Peter's second letter, he raises this issue when he speaks of those who ask the question, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter indicates that those who draw that conclusion are deliberately overlooking history as well as the fact that God's timing is not our timing. God is eternal. And He will return when the very last one of His sheep has been gathered into the fold. But not only do the unrighteous miscalculate and think that God's not coming at all, they mistake God's kindness for what it is. A gracious opportunity to respond to Christ in faith. It's the old saying, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. And in this case, instead of taking advantage of the opportunity to repent and believe, they use the opportunity to sin some more before the deadline arrives. We will see this next week when Paul writes of these, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So what becomes of those who are focused on suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness? Three times in this passage, in verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul declares that God gave them up. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased Mind And the word Paul uses means that God delivered them over or handed them over to these things. All of which went undetected by them. And this is part of the wrath of God. As we said a moment ago, God is not passive in the face of our sin. People will receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. And this is the trouble with sin. By refusing to respond to the light of God's truth by repenting and continuing instead to pursue sin, God allows men to have what they clamor for. But in so doing, the consequence is a foolish and darkened heart and mind. And the more men pursue sin, the greater their lust becomes the greater their dishonorable passions become and the more debased their thinking becomes until they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness as Paul enumerates at the end of this chapter. How often have you seen someone engaged in what we would describe as self-destructive behavior? And how often have you thought, why don't you just stop? Have you not looked in the mirror? But you see, there's only one who can rescue us from our sin and the darkness 
that envelops the mind. And that is God who offers salvation by means of faith in his Son. Apart from him, there is no hope. But you know, the most difficult cases are not the meth addicts living under the interstate bridge. Like the prostitutes and tax collectors of Jesus' day, they already know they're sinners who deserve the wrath of God. They are more inclined to hear and believe the gospel of God's grace, offering a righteousness that will cleanse them of their sin and set them free from the power of sin. This is why Jesus said, of them that they are the first to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those with the most darkened minds are those who self-righteously assume that they're in no danger. Their social standing, their financial security, their intellectual prowess, their moral superiority may deceive them into thinking that they are also spiritually secure. But there is a reason that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We will not throw ourselves upon the mercy of God if we do not understand the depth of our own sin. We will not turn to Christ in faith like the thief on the cross if we cannot admit that we justly deserve God's wrath. But if we have heard the gospel, if we have heard the message of God's plan of salvation that involves a righteousness of God that is from faith for faith, and we receive that righteousness of Christ by turning away from our sin and trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, then we can take great confidence that we have been spared God's wrath, for we will know that the Son received on the cross all of the wrath that should have been ours. Let me ask you this morning, have you come to that point? Have you looked in the mirror and seen the depth of your sin and your need for the Savior? If so, and you have never decided to follow Jesus then I invite you to commit yourself to Him even now in this hour and turn from your sin. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together.